Welcome back to the program. Let's begin with the prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, I thank you, and I praise you for the gift of this year, and for an opportunity to uh, come close to you, an opportunity to draw near to your life, Jesus. Lord, in this octave of Christmas, I ask that you give us the grace of welcoming you at a new level, at a new degree, into our hearts, our minds, and our lives. I pray especially, Lord, for those who are suffering. Lord, for those who are bearing heavy burdens right now. I ask Jesus that you be especially close to them and that these words that I share today from the book, Why Must I Suffer?, that they might be a source of light and consolation. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is, it's a real blessing to be with you guys today. And um, it, this is the last program I'm doing um, this year. And for me, that's a, I mean, that's a very meaningful thing. Because we're approaching endings and beginnings. We're approaching a time of like reflecting. And I'm hoping that you're using the time that you have in, uh, as we are here in the end of our calendar year to reflect on how your year went and on what went well and what could we do better. That's, a, that, that's an important activity in our life of faith. It really is. And especially when we have periods of time in our lives and aspects of our lives that involve suffering. St. John Paul II wrote a very powerful, um, uh, I think it's a papal letter, I'm not sure if it's an encyclical, on the meaning of human suffering. And uh, he talks about the saving power, the redeeming power that is associated with suffering when Jesus Christ is born into it. When our suffering is brought near to Jesus. Because that's not guaranteed. It's not a guaranteed reality that the experience we have of suffering is going to find an easy inroad into the sacred heart of Jesus. Did you hear what I just said? I just uh, That's a very important phrase. That suffering by itself, John Paul II says this, is associated with meaninglessness. And anybody who has had um, a, a, a period of time, an extended time of suffering, of having to endure difficulties and brokennesses, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, uh, all those different streams of suffering that are part of our lives, they're associated with not just this is uncomfortable, this is unpleasant, this is difficult. No, there, there is in the nature of suffering a quality of meaninglessness. And when we are in the midst of situations in our lives that are difficult, that are painful, that have to do with enduring a condition that has no immediate way out, no immediate path forward, that what we can find 
is um, a sense of, again, this is John Paul II, we, we feel despair. We feel a kind of sadness that weighs us down and can overwhelm us. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about the, uh, the, the manifestation of sadness in our lives when he is actually discussing remedies for sadness. And he says that when you're experiencing, let's call it that existential state of sadness, it's because you feel stuck in a situation where you are in pain and the idea of moving from that place of pain to a place that is free from that pain or that suffering is blocked. I don't know how to get there. And, and that's part of the effects of, of suffering is that Aquinas identifies three impacts. He says that suffering depresses. Now, he's not talking about the modern psychological diagnosis of clinical depression. He's talking more about the idea of being weighed down, pressed down upon. And isn't, isn't that like an apt description of the existential state of, of suffering is you feel weighed down. There's a heaviness. It's, it's like we're, we're bearing the weight of the world on our shoulders, right? So that's the first, is the depression, the, the weighing down. The second is that we feel, cons- uh, uh, we feel a narrowing, a constraining of the, uh, the vision we have of the world. The vision we have of the world becomes narrowed down into a fine point of focus on the the actual uh, reality of sadness or, or suffering that we have in our lives. And, and again, isn't that true? Isn't it true that when we're experiencing a, a deep kind of suffering, one of the, the effects of it is that it becomes um, a, a very narrow... Um, point of focus in our lives, right? So for instance, um, I pulled in a muscle in my neck and I needed to get ice on it. And and so I have one of those sort of gel ice packs. And, you know, my whole, um, my my whole like awareness of the world was impacted by this pain in my neck and I had to put this ice on it and I really couldn't move in certain directions and, and all of that. So there's a narrowing down our world becomes narrowed down when we're really suffering. And then the last is, he says, you become consumed by it. That suffering can become so great that it, uh, it turns our focus inward on itself and we can become consumed by, um, by the, the experience or the reality of suffering. And so, so that, that, that's a lot like our world, right? So when we're suffering, we feel weighed down upon we narrow our our vision of like the fullness of what our life is all about, and it becomes focused on the uh, place of suffering, and we become consumed by it. it. It's it's hard to focus on anything else because of the intensity of what it is that we're dealing with. So, why must we suffer? Why must we suffer? Well, yesterday on the program, I took a look at the first five of the five or six of the reasons why we must suffer. This is a book by Father 
uh, Remler, R-E-M-L-E-R. It's a, the subtitle is A Book of Light and Consolation. And again, I'm going over this in the, in the season of Christmas, during the octave of Christmas, this eight-day celebration of the birth of Jesus, because we do ask for Jesus to be born into our lives. That's what spiritually the, the Christmas season is all about in one way. In one way, it's about us welcoming Jesus into, the, into our lives. And in the places where we're probably most, what, desperately in need of Jesus drawing close to our lives, it's in those places where we're suffering. And, and yet that's the hardest, that can be the hardest place. Uh, I was uh, just talking with someone uh, earlier uh, today, this is Thursday, I'm recording this, and um, he is doing the, um, the Surrender Novena, the Father Delindo Ruotolo Surrender Novena, and it's Jesus, you take over, right? It's Jesus, I abandon myself to you, take care of everything. And that's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do when we are in places of pain and suffering because it it feels like there is a kind of um, uh, a kind of sense of saying, um, "How is this going to help me?" Like I can take a painkiller, I can put the uh, ice pack on my neck. These are actions I'm taking that I can s- draw a direct line and say, this is going to have a, a positive impact. But Jesus, you take over. Jesus, I surrender to you. I abandon myself into your hands. I, I give to you my whole life at that point of suffering. Use it as a doorway to enter in. That's a very hard prayer to pray. It's a very difficult prayer. It's a humbling prayer to pray. I call it a prayer of desperation. And that is... Um, that's actually a very important aspect of the spiritual life. Okay, let's continue to dig into these reasons. Okay, I did get through six um, of the reasons why we must suffer. Uh, if Just as a quick recap, it's as, uh, as a way of sharing in the consequences of original sin. That's the first one. The second is as a means of expiating public and national sins. The third is a natural result of indiscretions in our own lives. Fourth, a natural result of sins against the Ten Commandments, and how uh, that's the effect of sin, is that it leads to suffering. The fifth is, um, as a result of the temporal punishment of our sins, we suffer as a result of experiencing that punishment in time, rather than in purgatory, and that's the sixth reason, which is, why must I suffer? Well, I suffer now as a substitute for purgatory, and one of the key points there was, well, guess what? If you suffer now as a means of purging the, um, the, the sinful things that cling to our lives and the sinful impacts, the impacts that sin has had on our lives, um, we will do so meritoriously. We'll do so in a way that will help us to actually grow in our spiritual lives here and hereafter and forever. And, um, and in doing that, we also get to... Um, uh, avoid some of the suffering that is uh, associated with us being in purgatory. So uh, suffer now, meritoriously, rather than suffering later in purgatory without the merit. Okay, let's continue on today. The, we're going to take a look at um, three more reasons that are, sorry, four more reasons that are connected to our own personal lives. 
And then I'm going to cover four reasons that are connected to um, other people. Um, and that's what's called that the missionary or redemptive aspect of suffering. So why must we suffer? And so let's uh, let's take a look at the seventh reason. The seventh reason is the uh, is entitled the body's share in making atonement. And what's his point? Well, m- why must we experience suffering in our lives? Well, it's simply this: our body was part of the uh, the was the instrument used in all of our sins in one manner or form. We don't commit purely spiritual sins in a way that doesn't engage our physical body. When I say my physical body, I also mean uh, the re- the bodily reality that is mine that includes my brain um, and therefore my mind. And so uh, the way that he puts it is, as your body and its members and organs have been the instruments of your sins, it is but only just that they be made the instruments of the expiation and atonement required for these sins. And so uh, both our bodies and our souls take an intimate and necessary part in everything we do. At no point in our lives are we performing a human act. Um, in our body alone or in our soul alone. Therefore, every sin we commit, there's some bodily member participates. And and therefore, um, if that's true, if we are uh, committing sins in our thoughts, in our imagination, in our memory, these are involving our brain. And so um, cleansing or experiencing suffering as a way of making up for the damage that the the use of those aspects of our body have been part of is only just and right. So that's um, that's the seventh reason that he says. And I'll just give you a, a last uh, section from this uh, paragraph, uh, from this, uh, <coughs> excuse me, from this chapter, the last paragraph of this chapter. He said, at the same time, um, uh, you must realize that it's the will of God that you derive much good from what appears to be so great and evil. Remembering that the sufferings that you must now endure may serve you to secure a double gain. First, you can make full payment of your temporal punishment and thus escape the torments of purgatory. And second, God has been pleased to ordain that if you now make these same members the instruments of penance the rest of your life, they will in heaven be transformed in glory each one according to the amount of penitential works performed by it. So uh, he's recalling that um, that reality that um, so the body has shared in the reality of sin, so it must also be purified and cleansed and, and needs to make up for the damage it's caused. So connecting it back to a theme that we see in his book, Why Must I Suffer? Okay, we're up against the end of a break. I'll be back in a minute and continue on reflecting on this theme. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. Today I'm reflecting on suffering. I'm using the book, Why Must I Suffer? It's a book of light and consolation. Yes, that's the intention, a book of light and consolation. And I'm sharing with you now, most of you are still on vacation, um, headed back towards school next week if you've got kids of school age. And this um, ninth Uh, The eighth reason is your need of conversion. 
your need of conversion. And in the chapter, your need of conversion, he identifies various classifications of sinners, various types of sinners, people who sin just out of uh, negligence, sin out of laziness, sin out of a desire to hide the the unworthy way that they're living. Uh, and he goes on and on like that. But in, he, in the end, talks about um, what's it take to bring about conversion? Like the examples he gives of these various kinds of sinners are all um, associated with uh, Catholics, practicing Catholics. So you might be a practicing Catholic and yet you're still settling for less in these following ways. And he talks about the ways in which we give ourselves over to sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful deeds, or sinful omissions. And if I want to say it another way, I would say sinful attitudes and lifestyles, where we just are settling for less. And you remember that sort of famous quote by Léon Blois, which was, there's only one sadness, there's only one sadness in life, and that is not being a saint. And, and that's our call, right? We're all called to be saints. And that means to, uh, to grow into the perfection of charity. And I'll talk about perfect conversion in the next chapter, which is it's actually the next reason why we must suffer, is our call to perfect conversion. But first, let's just talk about the idea of conversion. And by conversion, it means turning away from sin and turning to God. There's a turning from and a turning towards and it's not just turning from a particular action of sin. Yes, it's that too. It's not just turning towards, turning away from certain behaviors that are sinful or unworthy and turning uh, towards other behaviors. No, it, it's about the turning of our entire lives over to God. And that means being detached from clinging to certain ways of living that we're just comfortable with. And I, I, I got to be honest with you, this is one of the biggest things that I think that we all find challenging in life is how do we find a motivation to undergo deep, radical conversion? What's it take to bring about a disruption of our ordinary way of living so that we can experience a like a freedom uh, from the shackles that leave us in let's just call it comfortable mediocrity comfortable mediocrity is 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 not a goal of the spiritual life it's not an ideal of the spiritual life um we're called to move beyond a comfortable mediocrity that says you know, I'm doing better than most. I'm going to Mass. Uh, I talk to my kids about the Catholic faith. I have them in Catholic schools. And compared to most people, we're pretty godly and pretty, uh, you know, uh, active in our own Catholic faith. But that's not the question. We're not our, The standard with which Jesus measures us is not um, how do you compare against you know, that half of the church, or even better, the the great majority of Catholics who are not even going to church, or even better than that, those that have left the Catholic faith and the practice of all faith and, and profession of any belief in God whatsoever. I'm doing really good. God should be super happy with me and should be blessing me abundantly. That is not the measure. The measure is Jesus Christ. 
the measure if if you want to say, well, Jesus is God and man, and so having him be the one that I'm called to imitate is too much of a reach. Well, then let's at least look to the saints. St. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, that we can look to the saints as models for what conversion looks like. And if we take an honest look at our own lives, honest look at the testimonies of others, and an honest look at the lives of saints, one of the biggest sources of conversion in the lives of saints, in the, in the testimonies of those who have changed their ways radically, big time. And one of the sources of disruption of ordinary ways of living is, yes, you know the word is coming, it's, it's suffering. It's when we really deeply suffer that God is using a megaphone right? I think, was that C.S. Lewis? Right? God whispers to us in our joys and, and, and uses a megaphone in our sufferings, something like that. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm thinking about the, what's the name of that fellow? I think his name is Steve, who was hiking by himself and, and had this terrible accident happen where a rock fell and um, basically crushed his arm and he was stuck and, and he was going to die. Uh, that he had no way of um, expecting anyone to rescue him because he was um, in a place where no one was expecting him to be. And and so uh, the idea of him being found was almost zero. And so he had to literally cut off his own arm. Uh, I, I think it was right, around the, right at the elbow. Um, he had to cut his own arm off in order to be able to get free because his arm was just trapped, uh, you know, but literally between a rock and a hard place. And I think that's the name of the book he ended up writing the testimony. Well, the point is that here's this guy who's healthy and fit and uh, has a, a wonderful life going on for himself, hiking out in the wilderness, and it's beautiful and has all of this, you know, all of these good things going for him. And, and then this tragedy happens, but he calls this tragedy his his birthday, the day of his new birth, the day where he uh, came to himself, kind of like the, uh, the prodigal son in the pigsty. Uh, what we from the outside look at as pure tragedy and a terrifying form of suffering that could, you know, could you do it? And he did it. And he looks back with great gratitude, with immense gratitude that this tragedy happened because it disrupted. It disrupted his entire way of looking at life, looking at himself, relating to his own life. And then, yes, all the, the change in behaviors happened. Conversion. Conversion. That turning from a comfortable way of life to doing whatever you need to do in order to honor God in the moment that will often involve suffering. If you've heard Carrie and me tell our story over the last four years, it, it's a story of attempting to raise our nine kids in the Catholic faith and finding ourselves in an environment that was toxic to their faith, even though we had made such serious efforts, intentional efforts, to have them be in the best Catholic environments, doing great Catholic things with other great Catholic families. But come to find out 
that the wider culture that they were experiencing in their school, their Catholic school, and in the wider culture, the society in which they were living, even though from the certain measures on the outside is extremely comfortable, extremely pleasant, satisfying, and enjoyable. But on another hand, it was dealing death to the faith of our kids. And it led us, Carrie and me, into a kind of suffering. But it was a suffering that was going to dislodge us from our ordinary ways of thinking about what we needed to do to be good parents in that moment. What did we need to do to be good parents in that moment? And we had to face it while suffering, while right in the middle of the suffering. And it had to do with a rebellious teenager, and it involved just all the terrible things that you see portrayed in movies or you hear about again in testimonies. But for Carrie and me, it was a terrible suffering and it was traumatizing in its own way for us, and it disrupted our normal way of approaching uh, our kids as parents, uh, her as a mother, me as a father, and it, uh, it put tremendous pressure and stress on our married life, and we had to walk that out every day, every night, and it was, it was horrible. And I look back on it now, and I say, thank you, God. I look back on the horror, the suffering, the trauma, the, the, the terrible, terrible anxiety and stress and pressure, the conflicts and, and the difficulties, and I say, thank you, God. We would not be living where we're living right now. Our kids would not be in the situation they're in with regards to their Catholic faith, which is flourishing more than it ever has, in, in uh, almost every exception. And even the, the teen that we struggled with so mightily had such a terrible path that involved, you know, a, a hellish journey. Uh, you know, when they say when you're driving, uh, when you're, um, what's to say, when you're passing through hell, keep going. <laughs> when you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> Don't stop. And how the Lord passed through, and he can raise from the dead what appears to be stuck in death and hell. And he has raised from the dead our relationship with that daughter in amazing ways. We spent a bunch of days with her uh, recently at home here over the Christmas season, and uh, that's five years after uh, the, the the real serious suffering um entered into our lives, and I look back and I say, thank you, God. Five years later, thank you. I wasn't saying thank you year one, year two, year three. I, I did not have the ability to see somehow God was going to bring glory. He was going to bring good out of the evil. He was going to bring glory out of the tragedy. He was going to bring life out of what only appeared to be death. He was going to bring somehow a new level of peace and flourishing out of what at that time was um, such disruption and uh, anger and frustration and and suffering. And so I share this with you to say, conversion. God loves you enough to bring about your conversion. And if you are 
going to hesitate or uh, ignore the whisperings that the Lord gives in the joys and pleasures of life. He loves you enough to allow you to undergo some very difficult trials and, and, diffic- uh, and, and tribulations. And, and again, any manner of suffering, because he'll make good out of it. God permits evil so that something greater can be brought out of it. God is that clever, that powerful, that um, uh, omniscient. He permits evil so that he might do something even greater out of it. And uh, it's not like the the final chapter's been written in our own daughter's life, um, or even in any of our kids' lives for that matter, but we have a, a firm lesson that has been ground into us, and it's only been ground into us by suffering. And it's interesting because Kerry acknowledges it. When, when we talk about um, other families and we see them on a trajectory headed down a path or a trail that is going to lead them further into the toxic swamp in their kids' lives, we, we, we have this sort of ministry of rescue, this ministry of throwing a flag on the field and saying, pause, stop. Do you realize what's happening? Do you see what's going on here? Do you know what's going to happen next? Do you have any sense or clue about what's going to be happening in your kids' lives? And the typical response that we get can be summarized as, we haven't suffered enough. We haven't suffered enough to really be willing to convert. We haven't suffered enough to have it disrupt in some radical way, non-ordinary, unplanned way, what we see for ourselves. Just not willing to go there. And it, it they haven't suffered enough, was Carrie's uh, insight. And I'm thinking, you're right, but boy, I just, I wish I could spare others from that suffering. And, and you know, and Carrie's response to that is, yeah, but would they really get it? Would they really get it uh, if, they, uh, if they didn't have some taste of what it was they were preserved from? You know, it's like, well, thanks be to God, they were preserved from it. But, you know, it's like, uh, it's used the house on fire, right? If, if your house is on fire and you had to run in there and rescue your kids and you got burned along the way, um, and then you run down the street because the, the, the fire is catching from house to house. You can knock on the door and get other, everybody else out of their houses before their house is ever on fire. And it's like, wow, what a gift that they received. But they don't have the same story to tell as those who, who were in the fire, right? So, so that's the uh, eighth reason. The eighth reason is God wants your conversion. And he calls you to be converted to him to turn away from sin and to turn to him. And if in his mercy, he has a purpose and a plan for your life that that calls you to a greater holiness, you should not be surprised that you suffer. And if you're suffering greatly, know this, God might just be doing a great work of conversion in your regard. All right, back in a minute. I'm going to go on to the 10th reason. 
Hey, welcome back to the program. So uh, the ninth, I'm sorry, it's the ninth reason. I said it was the 10th. The ninth reason is the call to perfect conversion. And I won't spend a lot of time on this one, but essentially it's the eighth reason was your, your call to conversion, which is basically waking you up from uh, an ordinary life that is a comfortable mediocrity with regards to our faith. The, the next reason why we must suffer and that's what I'm talking about today on the program, is I'm drawing insights out of this book by Father Remler, R-E-M-L-E-R, Why Must I Suffer? There's several publishers of the book. I got mine from Loretto Publications, L-O-R-E-T-O, Loretto Publications. Um, the book was originally published in 1935, but it's now, I guess, in like public domain, so anyone can publish it. So uh, this 10th reason sorry, the ninth reason is about the call to perfect conversion. And there, uh, he basically takes the concept found in the previous reason, which is suffering for the sake of conversion, which is, again, a wake-up call, to a call to perfect conversion. Like, why settle for any sin at all? Not, not, this is like not just talking about mortal sins, it's talking about venial sins. And it's not even just talking about uh, venial sins, it's talking about no sins at all. It's, it's not just talking about a lifestyle that is uh, avoiding the big chunky things that dishonor God to a life that passionately, zealously pursues God and his glory in every aspect of our lives. That's the call to perfect conversion, to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, and all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love our neighbor with the very love of Christ living in us, loving others through us. That's the call. The call is to have Jesus be everything in our lives. For us, for me, Christ, for me, life means Christ and death is gain, right? So that's, that's the call. That's the call. And the call to perfect conversion to that deeper conversion is is definitely connected to that reality of why are we suffering while well, we're suffering because of the um, uh, of this reality of the call to perfection the the call to to the perfection of charity. So, okay, uh, tenth reason. The tenth reason is forestalling the danger of eternal. Perdition. There's a there's a big word in there, forestalling the danger of eternal perdition, that damnation. Okay, he says the tenth reason why you must suffer may be this: God, whose knowledge of your future is as perfect as is His knowledge of your past and your present, foresees that a life without the cross would infallibly be the cause of your eternal damnation. Whoa, that is amazing. (laughs) And so perhaps God foresees that a long life, robust health, brilliant talents, honors, prosperity, wealth, success in business or politics or social life will prove to be the cause of your eternal damnation. Unknown to and unsuspected by yourself, there are lurking in your character all kinds of evil tendencies, fortunately as yet in a state of abeyance. They're lying dormant within you, mainly because favorable opportunities for their development have so far been wanting. Should these opportunities come your way, should you happen to be placed in other circumstances, these dormant tendencies may awaken and grow into passions so strong and so violent as to get entirely beyond your control. Before long, 
you might find yourself driven headlong into the commission of sins and crimes such as you would never have thought yourself capable of committing. And the light of these truths will proceed to show that misfortunes are often great blessings, inasmuch as they preserve many a man from the misfortunes of eternal perdition. Whoa. And so he talks about, uh, in here, he goes on and he talks about lifelong situations like being poor and how uh, if you retained your worldly wealth, that might lead you into um, greater sins of pride and arrogance and greed and um, uh, trusting in in yourself rather than in God um, and failing in your stewardship, right? And so the loss of wealth um, can be a great blessing. Sickness and infirmities, same thing. If you had greater health, then you might, in fact, uh, use that health in a way that advances your own agenda for your own life. But in sickness and infirmity, you're, you're beaten down in a way that is literally presenting you from falling into sin. So, and then he, he talks about um, deaths and bereavements, even that, um, even the, the loss of a family member in an untimely fashion, which can seem cruel on the part of God. And what's the answer? This is a quote now. He says, his infinite love for his children and his great solicitude for their eternal salvation it's good for the deceased that he demands this sacrifice, though at the time he also has the good of the survivors in view. Who knows, but for this seeming untimely death, the dear departed one might have been sentenced to the flames of hell, dying when he did, won for himself the surpassing bliss of heaven. And that's just so mysterious, right? That's just so mysterious when we think about the timing of our own death and the timing of the death of loved ones to, to take into account this perspective that God sees uh, the end from the beginning. He sees things in the light of eternity and the ultimate well-being of a soul and how a long life may be uh, uh, a setup, a, a disposing someone for um, all manners of evil temptations and and a downward slope into darkness and away f- and and living away from God, versus a um, you know a, a tragic but untime a, a tragic ending in while someone's in the state of grace and still innocent and and loving God might in fact be a great gift, uh, the gift of preserving them for eternal life, right? So, oh by the way, uh, let me just say this. This, uh, you know, this book, Why Must I Suffer? These are not uh, meant for you to then bring, like, bring that to people that are in those circumstances. Like, you should be thanking and praising God for the suffering you're undergoing right now. That tragedy, that difficulty, that loss of your business, that loss of your health, that loss of your loved one. You know what? Those are all just wonderful signs of God's infinite love for you. Don't do that. That is not going to help. These are meant to be reflections that can bring light to us, help us to see and understand that even when existentially we're not able to like feel or embrace or integrate those truths in the moment, God has a way of soaking those truths into us so that consolation can appear at the right time and in the right way. Let's, uh, let's move on now because I have still five uh, other reasons that are um, connected to, um, 
connected to a mission that suffering isn't only about conversion and growing as a saint. It's also about a mission lived here on earth. So um, we're going to take a look at five other reasons. And these, um, these assign to suffering a more exalted office than merely enduring the results of one's sins. Uh, he says a careful study of them will reveal the blessedness of suffering. He said that, uh, here's the 11th reason, making atonement for the sins of others. Making atonement for the sins of others. He says the 11th reason why you must suffer, especially if you have for a long time tried to lead a virtuous life, may be this. God may have found you worthy of the noble vocation of making your life an atonement for the countless sins committed against him the world over by his ungrateful children. If you've ever read the prayer of consecration to the sacred heart of Jesus, uh, it's this sort of oath of, I give my whole life over to uh, making atonement and reparation for the sins committed against, the sins and crimes and injustices committed against the most sacred heart of Jesus and the most blessed sacrament and the uh, and his blessed mother. Um, and it's all about this willingness to undergo suffering and to do penance as a way of making up for the horrible spiritual crimes that, that are being committed by our brothers and sisters in, uh, in humanity and in the church. And so um, he talks about this idea. There are many select souls that have followed the inspiration of grace and made themselves willing victims of expiatory suffering for the love of God. The world knows little or nothing of them, for they usually lead a hidden and secluded life, as a rule known only to their confessor or spiritual director. They're leading lives of incessant expiation through patient suffering, through personally, though personally they may never have lost their baptismal innocence. And so the, you talk about victim souls, right? So that this would be an example of these victim souls. And, and they're actually bringing about the uh, work of redemption, right? We think about how do we evangelize, and we evangelize through our words and our deeds, but we also evangelize by the people we are. But most profoundly, we help bring about the work of redemption that is evangelizing, proclaiming Christ in his redeeming work. St. John Paul II says, through our suffering. All right, back in a minute with more on this. Welcome back to the program. So I'm going through the last five reasons that we uh, are, uh, why we must suffer. Uh, on earth, again, drawing it from this book, Why Must I Suffer? And the, again, these last five reasons have a missionary purpose. There's a, uh, a meaningfulness, a, a redemptive purpose to suffering. And the first of the five was to atone for the sins of others. The second, or the twelfth reason of the, of the 15, is promoting the welfare of the church. And God, he says this, God may have given you the vocation of taking an active and necessary part in the promotion of the welfare of his church. You're to help to procure for her those special graces she needs continually in order to fulfill her mission of saving immortal souls. And so this task uh, is one that the church um, has in every age, and yet 
the challenge the church faces in every age is different. And when we see the church today, do we think that the church is facing easier or more difficult obstacles than it did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? Well, I, I, I'm not sure I can find many people who think that it's easier now to have the church accomplish its mission on earth. No, it's harder. It is, uh, it, it, it's going to take heroic efforts of the church to stand up and be courageous and proclaim the fullness of its teaching in our, in our country, in our state, in our communities. And I just use that word heroic, heroic efforts. Well, that's going to mean we need heroic souls that offer themselves to God to undergo this task. And yes, heroic souls undergoing this task of promoting the welfare of the church so the church stands up and fulfills its call can happen, uh, but often one of the things that is required is the secret hidden work of souls who are suffering and offering their suffering so that those that are doing the, the missionary work will do so with greater fruitfulness. Do you know I had an insight into this was St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta. So alongside her missionaries of charity, who were serving, 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 right, the, the dying, the, those that were um, the outcasts um, in, uh, in Calcutta, um, what did she do? Um, she founded a cooperating set of sisters who would not be going out into the streets to pick up those that are dying and to care for them. She found those who were suffering, sisters who were suffering and other lay people who were suffering. And she went to them and said, you can be a cooperator, a collaborator in our missionary of charity work by offering your suffering for their good. Offer your suffering for the spiritual fruitfulness of the work of the sisters. And you will have a secret but powerful part in keeping the, the engine, the dynamism, the, the fire, fervor, passion uh, of the sisters alive. And, and they did it by suffering, by undergoing suffering. And Mother Teresa had that insight. And so I know that there are some folks listening who you might live a life that is um, all by yourself. Um, you know, you're an empty nester, and you get to be with people sometimes, but Maybe there are, there's a lot of time where you experience the, the, a searing pain of solitude, of loneliness, of isolation, of feeling cut off, and it's very, very difficult. Offer that suffering up for the good of the church. Offer that suffering up for those missionaries, for those who have calls in the church to stand up and proclaim the gospel. We need your suffering to undergird, to be an engine, to motivate, to, to give us courage to stand up, speak out, and push back uh, uh, as, as the church in the modern world. Okay, 13th reason. Um, he talks about not only atoning for the sins of others, but procuring the conversion of sinners. And um, this is something that I found to be the most striking. And so I'm going to read it. It's again, it's just over a page long, but it's what has been on my mind and heart most fully in these past few months about the reality of doing penance and making reparation for sinners that are near to death and far from God. You've heard me talk about it on the radio. Well, listen to what I found in this book. 
chapter 13, Procuring the Conversion of Sinners. He said, The thirteenth reason why you must suffer may be this. God may have given you the vocation of procuring the grace of conversion for sinners, especially for those who are in their last agony and in danger of dying in their sins. Take your place in spirit at the bedside of a man who is about to pass out of this life with mortal sin on his soul. A few moments more and his lot will be settled for all eternity. If he appears before the divine judge with his sins unforgiven, nothing can save him from the unquenchable fire of hell. Forever and ever he must endure the most frightful torments, torments so great that in comparison with them, the agonies of those who die by fire are but the merest shadows of pain. Now, it is at this critical time that the intercession of God's friends comes in and plays a decisive role in the great drama of the sinner's death. In answer to the fervent prayers which are offered up for the conversion of sinners in their last agony, and especially in consideration of the sufferings endured for the same intention by so many holy souls, God willingly grants to dying sinners such additional graces as will triumph over their obstinacy and make them seek timely reconciliation by means of a sincere confession or at least by an act of perfect contrition. The decisive moment has come. Grace scores a glorious victory. The dying sinner turns to God, repents, is pardoned, is saved, saved with an eternal salvation. Who is there that can realize all that is contained in this short statement? He is saved. He has escaped hell with all its unspeakable misery and has been reinstated in his right and title to the surpassing bliss of heaven. A hymn of gladness and thanksgiving is intoned among the saints and angels who rejoice above measure that another soul has been snatched from perdition and will one day join their happy company to praise and glorify God for all eternity. But who can have an idea of the sentiments of love and gratitude with, uh, which that soul will henceforth foster towards those by whose prayers and sufferings she was rescued from the grasp of the demon at the last moment and sent rejoicing on her way to heaven, and how these sentiments will be intensified when she contrasts her happiness in heaven with the misery to which she would have been condemned had it not been for the grace of conversion procured for her by generous sufferers on earth. The gratitude that you would feel towards one who rescued you from death by fire bears no comparison with that which such a soul feels toward those who have rescued her from the endless fire of hell. What has here been described occurs not at rare intervals only, but thousands of times every day in the year. Nearly 100,000 souls pass into eternity every 24 hours. How many of these are saved and how many are lost? We have no means of knowing, for God has made no revelation on this point. But so much we can take for certain, that of those who are saved, very many owe their salvation to the grace of conversion procured for them, for them in the hour of death by the prayers and sufferings of the friends of God on earth. In view of these truths, should you not cultivate an ardent desire of contributing as much as lies in your power toward the furtherance of this great work of mercy? Should you not be willing to suffer and suffer much that dying sinners may escape the horrors of that hellfire which awaits them in eternity unless they repent before death puts an end to their life? Wow! Isn't that incredible?
I, I've just never read such a succinct um, and dense um, summary of what I have been feeling, sensing, reflecting on, and, and saying out loud in, in the past months. Uh, but it is so powerful and well put here. I'm like, that's the gift of all gifts that this book is giving me. Why Must I Suffer? A Book of Light and Consolation. It is just confirming in me this vocation to seek to rescue sinners who are near to death but far from God. I'm surprised he didn't mention Our Lady of Fatima in that chapter, to be honest. Okay, I'm running out of time, so I just want to give you the last two reasons. The fourth is, the fourteenth is to acquire conformity with Jesus Christ. Jesus was a man of sorrows. Jesus underwent his passion and his death uh, before he entered his resurrection. He underwent his paschal mystery. And so he did this on behalf of others. Now, if we're going to follow Christ, of course we're going to follow him by picking up his cro- our cross and following him every day. And that's going to mean our willingness to undergo um, suffering uh, in joining him in that great work of redemption. And then the 15th reason is predestination to an exalted degree of glory in heaven. This is what he says, God who loves you with the love that surpasses all understanding may have predestined you to enjoy for all eternity an exceptionally high degree of glory in heaven. If you're weighed down by heavy crosses and painful afflictions, despite the fact that you've long tried to lead a sinless life and to love God above all things, it's very likely because the divine goodness has the most wonderful designs on you for eternity. And that's where we have saints willing willing to suffer and suffer and suffer because their sense of their call to um, to be these victim souls that God has chosen to participate in the work of redemption of, of Jesus as a way of leading them to a higher degree of glory in heaven. Well, there you go. Why Must I Suffer? A Book of Light and Consolation, an amazing book by Father Remler. Hey, God's blessings on your day. Have a great weekend. Happy New Year. Join me on Monday for Sound Insight.